the Askell Leadership Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Trust Askell Podcast. My name is Rob Robson, and I am Askell's Trust Leadership Consultant. If you've listened to any of these podcasts before, you will know that they feature leaders who lead our education system and who have something interesting to say or are the voice of experience. With my guest this week, I can confidently say he is combining both. He has the voice of experience as he's worked across the system in a number of different roles, including that of head teacher, senior roles in local authority, a regional schools commissioner, and in his latest system, leader incarnation, as the CEO of one of the largest trusts in the country. My guest is Tim Coulson, who is CEO of the Unity Schools Trust, and who is also an Askell Council member and a member of the Askell Trust Reference Group. Tim certainly has interesting and challenging ideas about system leadership, which I really enjoyed talking to him about, and I'm absolutely sure that you will enjoy his ideas too. Welcome, Tim. It's fantastic to have you on the podcast, and thank you for giving up your time. Could you just start by telling us about your experience across the education system? I've had uh, the great fortune of um, uh, being involved in a number of different organisations. I, I, I've been a, a teacher and worked in a number of schools and then uh, had probably the best job of my entire career, uh, being the head teacher of a, a school in Islington, which I loved. And I, I remember going around that school early in the morning and thinking I, I could not imagine a better job than leading this a particular school and I still look back on that even though I was now appointed there over 30 years ago so it's really quite some considerable time ago and I and I think back quite how much things have changed and one of the most interesting things in my time there was just after I'd announced that I was going to leave we had the first letter announcing an Ofsted inspection and the school was given nine months notice <laughs> of Ofsted uh, coming to visit the school and so just I thought it just reminds me a sign of quite how things change o- over the years. I've had the good fortune since then to have had a mixture of working in both sort of uh, local organisations and national organisations and enjoyed the interplay between uh, having the opportunity to see a national organisation where one has generally a, a sort of a small role uh, across country uh, versus uh, a more local role where one tends to have a more senior role uh, and to really sort of have the opportunity to be part of an organisation. And so I, I've worked uh, as a teacher in four local authorities and I've worked as a senior officer in five uh, local authorities and I've worked for three national organisations in different roles. And I think um, through that, it's given me the opportunity just to see people working in schools through different eyes, through the different kind of remits those organisations had. Uh, I love the local authority work. I particularly loved it after they became children's services authorities and that sense of not just an education department, but a department that was there for children. And we joined up uh, those who were responsible for education with those who were responsible for, uh, for social care. And I've really enjoyed the roles that I've worked in national organisations, partly to see a bit about how government works, uh, but also an opportunity to work way beyond the areas of the country where I've had my home and I know family and those sorts of things. And I remember going to Bolton one day thinking I've never been to Bolton and have the opportunity to go and visit schools in Bolton. And they were like everywhere, completely 
different schools in that area and some things completely the same as everywhere else. And so that's been a, a great opportunity. In terms of leadership, um, you know, I still count that role as a head teacher as very significant. The roles in local authorities, I feel we've had tremendous opportunities to provide not leadership to schools in terms of leading them, but leadership of the organisation. When we were at our best, leadership of the system to try to make things better for children, to corral organisations, to work together and try to build uh, partnerships. Uh, in terms of the, the national organisations I've had roles in, there it's been very much um, generally roles where to try to disseminate policy of the government of the day in terms of what they were assisting doing and try to put that into some kind of tactics that made sense for schools and move beyond the political agenda and to look to make it an opportunity for school improvement. Thanks, Tim. What a fascinating, really varied career you've clearly had. So can you pick out a thread throughout that career in terms of your approach or your philosophy to leadership? I think a thread that I've had right through from, I remember being a head teacher, was a sense of wanting to do it with others, but quite enjoying being senior. And I think I, think I thought at that time when I was a head that I didn't have to answer to anyone. And I was a bit scathing at that stage, I think, probably of governance. I think one of the things I've really learned over the years is actually the value of governance rather than the, the nuisance of governance, as certainly as I, I used to, to, to think of it. I think in terms of the leadership roles I've had, I think increasingly what I've learned is that leaders don't have levers that make things happen. Leaders have opportunities to take people with them. They can use their authority to do a bit, but then it dries up. And occasionally you have to use your authority to do some stuff that makes a difference and happens. But in general, the vast majority of what you need to do is you need to take people with you, work with them, work through them, help them do it, help them feel empowered to make the difference in their schools. And I think one of the threads I think is trying to work out that balance between using the authority to determine things and using that authority to corral, to bring together, to try to uh, facilitate and to help people move together. And it seems to me that it's a complete mistake to abdicate the opportunity to determine and to insist and to use the authority and the seniority you have to make things happen. Because you know, there are times when if you don't, nobody else can. And I suppose I remember after being a newly qualified teacher for three days, being so shocked by the head teacher I worked with being so pathetic. I can't remember quite on what, but after three days, I thought he was so pathetic on, but I did think he was so pathetic on. I was determined I would be a better head teacher and jolly well show the kind of thing that a head teacher could be able to do. And it seems to me that you know, leaders do need to live up to the opportunities they have. But I think probably increasingly I've learned that that's a limited part of what you do. And although you have a responsibility to do it from time to time, the much greater sense of the leadership is that sense of making the weather, setting the culture, trying to set the tone of an organisation, trying to help people keep the belief 
in what they're doing. So at the moment in COVID times, right, you know, I work with an amazing group of people who are passionate about working with children, but are tired and tired in the autumn term, even earlier than everybody is tired in the autumn term. Right? You know, and they are battling to keep going. And how do we together keep the belief that on the most grotty day where we've had the most grotty number of COVID cases and difficulties and staff overstretched because we've got so many gaps and that in terms of dealing with things, people still keep the passion of this is about the children. This is about us providing safe education, of course, but also fantastic education. So just before I came on this uh, call with you, I phoned a school. They were too busy to talk to me because they were in the middle of reviewing their English curriculum. And I thought, isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? Even in these difficult weeks, they haven't abandoned their schedule, you know, and said, oh, it's all too difficult. We'll have to sort of put all of that stuff to one side and come back to it later in the year. We're still doing those really important things which we want to do, making sure our English curriculum is reviewed and sort of going through the review cycle that they're doing. And they sort of were keeping that on the agenda. And I felt really pleased that that was still happening despite the pressures that the school's under. You talk about taking people with you, but you also talk about those opportunities to get things done as a leader. And you particularly referred there to your days as a head teacher, so in an individual, but also you just gave us an example of working as the CEO of a trust as well. But can we just turn to system leadership? What do you think system leadership actually is from your experience? Because you do have a very wide ranging experience of the system. And what do you think it is and why do you think it's important? I think um, I used to have a sense that system leadership came after school leadership. School leadership was being in charge of a school. System leadership was having a role beyond that across more than one school, across a bit more of a system. I think in a way that's probably a bit stark. And I suppose I think increasingly system leadership is people prepared to be part of the system as well as part of their organisation. And so I think for head teachers, that's quite a big moment. Um, Because I think part of being a head teacher is you're about your school. You're a bit like a club manager. Beat the rest of them, you know, draw up the drawbridge. Nobody's going to come and sort of enter into our school. We are the school that's going to, you know, deliver results and more children and stand against the evils that the local authority, the government, everybody else might be throwing at us. And we're together going to sort of do that. And so that sort of mentality sort of whips schools up and gives them a collegiality. The risk is that it sets up opposition against the partner organizations though even if sometimes you're a bit in you're grumpy with them actually we need great relationships with the wider system and I think for me the system leadership is a real commitment to saying you're going to work with the rest of the system and so for me a formative moment was moving from I used to work for the national strategies and labor government initiative and uh, that was fantastic and I absolutely loved it and we had this sense of driving an idea and everybody sort of would do it not because they statutorily had to do it but because the quality of what we did would drive people to do it. I then moved to work for a local authority and I moved into a children's services department where suddenly that sense of if we were to do well for children in Reading, which is where I worked, 
it wasn't just having a great school. It wasn't just having a great maths lesson. It was having a happy family. It was having services for those children who didn't have a happy family, for those children who were vulnerable. Uh, and it was about trying to bring together schools at their best, but other agencies and services that did that much better. And I think that gave me a real insight into being a system leader was about bringing people together. So I was given the particular task of bringing down exclusions. At the time, permanent exclusions had sort of gone a bit high in the area. And the interesting feature was someone said, you're going to have to go out to those head teachers and read them the riot act and tell them to stop doing permanent exclusions. Fortunately, I had a really wise director of children's services who said, Tim, I wouldn't do that if I were you, because you know um, they won't like it. Uh, if I were you, I would go out with them and sympathise and say that you will review with them every single permit exclusion to understand the reasons which led them to have to make that difficult decision. I went down that route and exclusions halved before we'd even looked at any, because just the sheer issue of being challenged to sort of talk through each of them, made half of them disappear before we even started reviewing them. And so there was something about that I thought was really interesting, about how you sort of got a level of engagement that wasn't about telling people, but was sort of trying to understand their view. If I talk about system leadership now, so I, I lead a multi-academy trust, and academy trusts, not all, but many had their genesis in schools wanting to break away be independent, sort of go their own, plough their own furrow. All of that kind of language was sort of like quite strong in certain their own way. And what that did, I think, initially was sort of a little bit set people against everybody else. I think we've moved way beyond that. And I think in a sense, you know, vast majority of the secondary sector is academy sector, half the primary sector is. And so it's in a sense, it's much more just not that unusual. And I think the key thing for us as an academy trust is, is that we want to be a trust of schools that wants to be seen as a great partner with the rest of the system, with the local authority, with other areas, with other schools, academies, other trusts. And what I observed, certainly when I started in this role, was because we're in our area, we're probably the largest uh, trust. And I think there was an assumption that we were just after them. You know, we were empire building, you know, we were, we'd obviously grown quite quickly. We were just on the lookout for other schools. And so I think people, you know, nervous of getting too close or almost thought like we might suck them in and they might have some choice about sort of being drawn into our trust. And I think we had to work quite hard at saying, no, we, we want to be a trust for children, but has partners with other organisations. And it's not an exclusive club. So it, there's a town called Haverhill where there are 10 schools and we're, we're responsible for eight of those schools. And we've had to work quite hard with the other two schools to say there are Haverhill issues where let's work together with you. You don't have to be in our trust to want to work with them, but we do want to work with you. I think we've had particular success in Bury Snedmans where the schools there have come together on social issues, particularly like county lines, which I think have moved beyond the sort of the trust issue. And I think that's been a a good sign of we want to be a leader with other people, not a leader of you, but a leader with you in terms of those things. And do you think, going back to one of your earlier points about the challenge of competition leading to seeing people as the opposition 
And it's how we move in the system from competitiveness around, in multi-academy trust terms, picking up more schools or growing to the size that makes a trust sustainable. How do we do that as a system? How do we work together so that competition doesn't lead to us seeing local authority schools as as being different to math schools in the end because they're all schools and they're all delivering for children? Well, I think the first thing is, in a sense, I think to recognise the innate tensions. And I suppose we go back and you look at towns with two secondary schools and typically they've hated each other. They've been out there because they've been in competition for the same children. And in a sense, you know, if one was up and one was down, the one that was down struggled with numbers and money and everything. And the one that was up had money and resources and could expand. You know, and so and I think in many ways, trust can be like that. I think there are two things which we've done, which try to move that on. One is we are trying to have schools where there are two schools in the same town in the same trust. And I think that moves things on very considerably. So there are, there are two secondary schools in Haverhill and their relationships in the past have been tricky. And, and, and I mean, adults who've been part of one or other. And, and it's, you know, it's like the football teams, you know, you, you are for, for one team or, or for the other team. Uh, and in some sense, that's fine. You know, loyalty to your school and a sort of, you know, it's like competitive feeling against your neighbouring school. That, that, that's fine. I mean, that, that's all part of, you know, growing up and having a nice time, isn't it? And sort of that, that sort of thing. But I think where it fell down was the school leaders can't embrace that. The school leaders have to embrace that we're here for the children of Haverhill. And of course, we've each got our own responsibilities for our school and we'll each market our schools and we'll do all those sort of things. But at its heart, we're going to work together. I think with Matt's, which is your question, was I think we just need to be transparent with each other and open. And I think the development of the DfE system around this has got better. I think there's a greater chance. So, you know, X school goes into special measures, has to join a trust. Am I knocking on the door saying, come to us? Is somebody else knocking on the door saying, come to us? Or are we both saying, oh, not that one. That, that's too difficult or horrible a school for us to touch. You know, we, we don't want that one. So how do we sort of take our attitude to that? I suppose I think the key thing for us, certainly in our area, is that those discussions, I think, are a little bit, well, we're having those discussions. In sense, we're sort of having, but how shall we respond to that? How shall we try to behave in a professional way that respects the fact that each of us have boards we're working to that expect us to do things, and yet we're trying to work collaboratively with colleagues? So I think there is a, a better system within the DfE for handling that now which can, in a sense, honestly give us the opportunity to say, yeah, I'll put my hand up to be considered and you can put your hand up to be considered. And there is a decision maker who will come to a view over what's the most appropriate thing for this school and what will take this school further uh, forward. I think the other thing which we're quite keen to do is, again, because we've become in our area, probably the slightly larger organisation, is that we feel that we want to demonstrate that some of the things we've now got good fortune to do, we, we've some posts in our trust structure that uh, some trust wouldn't yet have, like a, a director for special needs or a director for IT or a very good HR service and things like that, which in a sense, you know, become the benefits of a slightly large organisation. Being clear to other trusts that if we can help them, we would like to do so. And so certainly during the lockdown period, I had a number of colleagues Although schools were very occupied, some of our trust colleagues weren't able to go into schools as much and so were working from home, all those sorts of things. And so we deliberately put some of their time on to outreach work that was to, for free, um, support 
and offer help to trusts that would benefit from a few hours on how did we do this when we got to this stage in our trust development and that they perhaps are now at their trust stage. So I think sort of like, I mean, you know, in itself, that was nothing much. But I think it's all sort of trying to do actions that just make us all slightly a bit more relaxed with each other and sort of able to just you know, pass the time of day and, uh, and be more likely to sort of, in a sense, then access each other to actually something of benefit and help. Can you see in the future a system emerging where there are more partnerships between multi-academy trusts and local authorities, particularly around you describe those schools that sometimes people say, well, actually, that one's not for us because it's very difficult or very complicated. And could you see a, a partnership approach to building those schools back up rather than it being the responsibility of a single multi-academy trust? Absolutely. And there are two things which we're trying to do in Suffolk. One is make a commitment that there will not be a school like that in Suffolk, which nobody will touch. That in a sense, you know, we will commit that when difficult circumstances arise, we will try to make sure that somebody does pick it up and take it. The second thing is we've committed to as a group of trusts is that although we can't absolutely 100% deliver this because the Department for Education might not allow us to, but one of our commitments is that in the event of a trust having a difficulty, so a school doesn't do very well, right and uh, goes goes off piste and does poorly and so the trust is likely to attract criticism from the dfe about you know, not having done very well with that school we as a group of trusts will look to support that trust improve that school so that the dfe doesn't need to go as far as taking the school away from that trust now that's not a maintained school so that's a slightly different thing but certainly schools within trusts that commitment to try to say none of the schools in any of our trusts would need to be rebrokered because the school starts to go wrong, the DfE start being critical, but actually that's enough to trigger the other local trusts stepping in and offering whatever else extra support, perhaps the trust which is having a bit of a hard time in the school, that would just help that trust have enough capacity to improve the school and to demonstrate to the DfE that it had capacity and friends to deliver capacity that meant that the school didn't get. Now, I think just talking about that stops us wishing evil on our friends for our own benefit. That's a really interesting commitment. Going back to your days as somebody involved in children's schools and families, can you see Matt's also starting to take on a wider role in terms of leadership of an area? So some of the other public services um, working closely with Matt's? I can a bit. I suppose I think it would be a mistake to take on responsibilities that statutorily belong to other people, like social care. Where I think we could very definitely take a wider brief is in the world of special needs. Because I think with special needs, the providers of special needs are too disparate. And the local authority is meant to commission everybody and provide enough places for all children. But their powers to get the right providers are fairly limited you know they can over a very slow process open a new free school that's a pretty long torturous process right and what they really need is the whole system to be more nimble and to be more collaborative 
about providing places as children need. And at the moment, institutions don't really have any responsibility to react to the local authority. It says it's the local authority's problem if there aren't enough places for children with autism or whatever. So it does seem to me the idea of trust working together to help provide the education system the, lo the local area needs would be a good thing. And so I could certainly see that developing in, in a, a better way. I think the other thing which I think would really help is a greater movement of staff between the different parts of the organisation. So I feel really fortunate to have sort of moved a little bit between local and national organisations. And just through that, you just see and understand better that people in the other sector aren't all idiots, which is what most of the world tends to assume of people in another part of the organ. For, for goodness sake, why don't they sort themselves out and just whatever, right? And so you have a bit more of an understanding about why actually their life's quite difficult too. You know, it's not that simple to do some of these things. And I think that's sort of more you get that mutual understanding, you get a bit more commonality of working, a bit more commitment to try to do things better, really. I'd like to talk to you um, as part of thinking about leadership, about four words which get bandied about a fair bit in system leadership in particular and in trust leadership and their consistency, standardisation, autonomy and innovation because sometimes those things are presented as being opposites and I'm wondering whether you see them as opposites or whether you see them as all part of that conversation that needs to happen between leaders. So I think they're challenges, but I don't see them as opposites. And one of the ways I talk to head teachers about consistency and autonomy is, first of all, describing in a sense a spectrum from you'll all do it my way to you can all do it any way you like. And then saying, I think we've got to move away from that spectrum to what's would make our schools better. And if we move away from it's my way or your way to what is the way that the schools would operate better and how do we decide what the way schools would operate better is. And it's not my way, but it might be that across our trust, we have some practices in some schools that are clearly more effective. And so therefore, it would be remiss of us not to codify those and to make them become expectations for consistency away the way we all work. The second is, are there ways of working that actually would make our lives better? So those go along things like, what's the value of going to common syllabuses? People all have their own opinions about the syllabus that works. And he says, just recognise all of those are valid. Forget which is the right syllabus, but wouldn't it be a lot easier if we all just use the same so we then become more efficient? So there's something about, in a sense, having that principal debate and then coming into the right one. So at the moment, we're having a massive debate about Google and Microsoft. Right now, I'm not an expert on either. From what I can see is some schools do very well with Google platforms. Some schools do very well with Microsoft platforms. But at the moment, we got a mess because we've had quite a few schools join us recently that are on Google, whereas the majority of our schools predominantly have been on Microsoft. And so my colleague in the office who sets up meetings, and obviously at the moment, lots of meetings by Teams and Zoom and all that sort of thing, because she's on Microsoft, 
she's got a nightmare with the schools on Google. And so sort of like just now all of that, I'm sure technically is just we work our way through and we get a bit better and gradually we find little techniques that all those things that get past that. But at the moment, we're having this debate about do we just get better at maintaining two systems and working out how communication difficulties between the two? Or actually, should we just bite the bullet and say, we will do only one of those? Now, that's the first decision. Once we've done only one of them, it's an easier discussion, even if it's very painful to the people who really got opinions about whether they like Google or Microsoft, about which one it's going to be. But anyway, if, if, if we have the decision that we are only going to do one, which we haven't yet reached, but if we were to, then I feel very comfortable to argue it out for two months, Google and Microsoft, and in the end to decide it's this one. And we will now do a change program that goes to one of those. So I think there's an efficiency argument. I think there's a sort of best way argument. But then there's an argument that says, if you do too much consistency, how do you know you've not missed the great new idea? And so there's something to be really important about how do you keep your mind open all the time? And sometimes people say to me, oh, Tim, look at this. You really ought to be driving this right through the whole trust, right? You know, everybody ought to be doing this. And I sort of think like, is it really the best idea? Or do we just have some stunningly good leader who's using that technique and their technique uh, is leading to great outcomes, but actually it's not the technique, it's the great leadership of the idea and their implementation of it and they just are doing it fantastic. But actually if we were to take their idea and make everybody do it, actually would it just be a bit feeble in some schools and no better than what they're already doing in that area and that's all we'd have done is cause people a whole load of grief making them do something which they weren't didn't particularly have their hearts and minds in so i think in terms of the consistency we're at a place in a trust where we know we ought to shift to greater consistency than we are now without a view that we are going to be everything is going to have a unity way of doing it and that it, it ought to be decision by decision and we might come to different kinds of decision in different areas and the very discussion about how we get there is crucial so there's absolutely not the message of if we go for consistency somebody me somebody else had the right to make that decision and so if there is a decision how we make that decision so microsoft or google let's say you know how do we make that decision who decides in the end it's microsoft it's Google. We can have a vote, so we're going to do this. Now, the answer is no, we're not. But we need to have a process where somehow we feel confident in how we got to the answer of that, even if 30 head teachers never agree on anything. Yeah, that's why they became head teachers. Right? You know? I was just laughing about the idea of 30 heads ever agreeing on anything. The final little bit I'd just like to explore with you is that obviously you're an incredibly experienced leader and you've had as you say, experience of leading in single schools, local authorities, nationally as well. How do we develop the next set of leaders who are right for the system? I had a really interesting conversation with one of our head teachers the other day about this. And he, he's um, not been head very long. So he doesn't really identify with some of our slightly more experienced head teachers who have quite a jaded view of the local authority. Right, who perhaps sort of came in that group of schools that were breaking away to become academies. You know, he says his experience of leadership is pretty much within an academy structure. And we were talking about, would his next job be somewhere else? Would it be in a school? You know, what, what, was he going to be a 
head teacher for a long time and perhaps then one day move to another? Or would he do a different kind of job at some stage? Would he go and take a senior local authority job for a while? And how would he know what that would be like? Because he'd never done it. I think there's three things we need to do to really grow our next group of senior leaders, and you said. The first, I think, is to try to have a much more flexible system of short-term opportunities for people to have the opportunity to go and test something out, to go in and stand in for people. Now, we in trust have some of the greatest opportunity for that across our schools to move people around a little bit, to help them out. Tragedy in a school, you know, we're able to move someone from another school to go and help out. Obviously, it was a tragic situation, but a great development opportunity for the person who went and stood in temporarily for, for someone. So I think there's something about how, how we try to use our flexibility. I think how we work with other organisations to sort of try to get a little bit of movement between the sectors of leaders uh, is, is really critical. But I think the most important thing is that the current leaders need to not look jaded. Because I think the biggest disincentive into leadership is seeing leaders who look knackered. And people think, they might admire them, right? They think, God, he's amazing. Or she does an amazing job. Think I'm going to do that? He must be joking. Look, it kills them. They've got no life. Suppose I do think we've got to help current leaders be successful, have a life. Because I think most people do love their jobs. But some leaders are a bit moany as well, because life's a bit hard. Right? And so you moan a bit, don't you? Right? So that's life's life. But I suppose there's something about how do we make sure that, that the moaniness is sort of kept to the right place, but that the leader is able to do the unbelievably difficult things of manage their work life so they don't keel over, even though in COVID times, their hours they're asking to work is just ratcheted up. So how do they then you know, manage their working life and model doing a job that's amazing they, they they've landed and although it's demanding difficult sometimes impossible all those sorts of things actually they've landed a job with the opportunity to influence hundreds possibly thousands of children's lives and what a great opportunity that is now doing it is not easy there's difficulties there but you've got that opportunity to make a difference so you started as a teacher with your 30 children or in a primary school or in a secondary uh, school with your, your form tutor and then the other groups that you, you worked with. And you met children and you knew you changed their lives and you got to know them. As a system leader, you don't get to know the children in the same way. You don't have that same personal opportunity to understand Tim and how Tim feels. But if you get it right, to set the scene for thousands of children to have a better opportunity than they would have if you didn't put the bits in place that make the difference and I suppose I think you know I talk to heads a lot about you know that you make a difference for good or bad you know you know if you're rubbish you know there's not much the teachers can do you're so influential and if you're good you help your teachers I think system leaders it's a little bit less easy to see because you're not in an institution all the time, sort of seeing the dynamics and seeing the, you know, the ups and downs of the day. But you do have that opportunity just to set things out. And if you can be successful, you are influencing thousands of children and thousands of staff. And you're putting in place things that uh, are life-changing for people. So I think, in a sense, I go back to your question, how do we grow those next leaders? For me, it's about helping the current leaders model those. it's amazing. Because I think then people will want to do it.
And is it amazing, Tim? It is amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> I, 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 um, I've done... I, I look back on one job, which I did not enjoy at the time, but I do look back on it now as learning. I, I went to work in an infant school, which was a bit beyond my comfort zone at the time because I'd never worked with young children, you know, that young children before. Uh, and it was a great experience. And I learned a huge amount and I taught my classes and, I, and uh, it, you know, I really learned about teaching young children. I worked with the worst head teacher I've ever worked with. And I remember being so despondent at these newly qualified teachers who came into the school bright and breezy and after a term were as cynical as the rest of the staff I worked with. And thinking, this is dreadful. The difference that a school can make on what looked like really promising people. And they became as cynical as everybody else. And I thought, as lacking in energy and you know pushing the boat out uh, as anybody else. And then I've been to work for other people and you see the difference they make. And I suppose I think you meet people all the time who just enthuse you. In our trust, we recently had the opportunity to decide whether to take on the local authorities expanding uh, what it's calling specialist provision. So people, some people call them units alongside a mainstream school for a dozen children or 18 children with a particular need who will be on the school role but have their own separate provision and they can either be separate some of the time or they can integrate with the rest of the school depending on how they are. Now this is a big challenge. Five of our schools stepped up, have done it and have set it up. All five of them, all five of the head teachers said to me, Tim, I don't know much about this, but I know it's the right thing for my school. And they sort of just ran with it, even though I think at times they didn't really know what we were doing. And by working together, they've made it a fantastic success. And you know, only started in September, but we've got 50 children who might not have school places otherwise in these five provisions. And you go around and their children have all got their own very special needs. And you can see why uh, mainstream school perhaps wasn't quite right for them and why they just struggled but they're thriving, these new institutions. And you think, isn't that amazing that all of us, quite ordinary people who don't know much, just sort of committed to doing something and we could change things. You know, we, we could actually make stuff happen just because we thought, why not? Uh, let's have a go. Um, and, you know, we found a few people who, with a bit of expertise who, who came and helped us, but sort of like all quite ordinary, you know, people without great expertise in the area managed to make something happen. And that's, um, that feels just like, you know, an amazing opportunity really. I warned you because I always ask everybody this last question. So how do you, lead, leadership is a, is a pressurised job, even when it's very enjoyable, as you've uh, been saying, it's still pressurised. And sometimes we just need to take it off and be somebody else. So what do you do to stop leading and relax a little bit? I've always had a um, lovely family at home. And so I think when, you, when you've got young children, they make you take your mind of it because you know they're not interested in what do you do in the during the day they've grown up they've all grown up they've all moved away uh, so I don't have that in a sense you know come home and you know everything's different but I think that sense of having loads of things that we enjoy together and sort of the things that they only want to hear about what I'm doing for three minutes and then they've had enough you know they're, they're on to other things and that sense of having another life and other people I think is the thing which I I enjoy the most I mean I've got loads of things I enjoy doing and in terms of sport and uh, you know, watching sport or sadly not playing sport so much now but I think also just having the family and friends that sort of just give you that life beyond the school work I think for me is what uh, keeps me going I spoke to a head teacher the other day and we were discussing how many hours she was working because right? she was working too many. And she said what I think was, I actually, I'm less stressed when I've finished the work. 
So to actually work a couple of hours extra makes me feel better. And mm. I'm the same as she is. I, actually, I've um, so working hard and then having to work a bit harder sometimes doesn't phase me because actually I know it makes me feel better because I actually feel more fulfilled finishing the stuff than worrying about the things I haven't done really. So I'm not certain that's much of an answer. I took up bell ringing again uh, before the lockdown, but then the lockdown came. So my <laughs> bell ringing career, yeah, having not rung since the age of 21, uh, and going back to it, I did three months and then lockdown came and ended my bell ringing careers. Anyway, maybe I'll get back. Yeah, there's, there's something waiting for you when you get back. I hope so. I hope so. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. And it's been really fascinating, both hearing about your own personal journey, but also your thoughts on system leadership and trust leadership too. And it's also been really inspirational. I think um, hearing somebody who's been in the system, there I say, for a, a fair amount of time, still be incredibly enthusiastic about it and, and incredibly enthusiastic about the possibilities and, and the future as well is, is really inspiring. So thank you so much for that. It's been great, really has. Thank you very much indeed. The Ask Old Leadership Podcast.